Hello and welcome to this mini-series from the MDT podcast team, covering some of the more common issues encountered when working with older adults. Each session is structured around a clinical question, and our aim is to help you approach these like a geriatrician, and they're all roughly around 10 minutes. I'm Jo Preston, and I'm a geriatrician in South London, and joining me remotely are Alice O'Connor. Hello, my name's Alice O'Connor, and I'm a teaching fellow in East Surrey. And Ian Wilkinson. Hello, uh, I'm Ian Wilkinson. I'm a geriatrician down in Surrey. And this session is all about atrial fibrillation, which is the most common tachyarrhythmia that we see in older adults. Mrs Hart is supposed to be going home today, but now she's in AF. How do I treat it? So this is a common problem that we see um, during people's stay in hospital and can sometimes affect their discharge. And there are a number of different treatment options, and sometimes they can just feel overwhelming. But here are five things that you can easily find out which will help you make a decision about what to do. First things first, is this definitely atrial fibrillation? If you're not entirely sure, it's worth running through the ECG systematically to work it out. Included an example ECG in the show notes, which we'll run through shortly. So if you want to bring that up while we're talking, you can have a look through as we go. Secondly, is this person known to have atrial fibrillation already? If you're not sure, then have a look at the medication list. If that doesn't give you any clues, then you might want to give the GP surgery a call for some collateral history. If the atrial fibrillation is known, then what has changed? And that brings us to the third and fourth things. Number three, what's the ventricular rate and has it changed acutely? Are they hemodynamically stable? If they're not, consider whether you might need to put out a peri-arrest or MET call. Number four, are they symptomatic? Symptoms with AF can include palpitations, shortness of breath, chest pain and dizziness. The timing of symptom onset can sometimes give a clue as to the onset of AF if it's not otherwise clear. Symptoms can also have implications for management further down the line, such as whether or not to attempt cardioversion. And thing number five, the final thing, is what drugs are they taking? Drugs can sometimes give you a clue as to whether or not this diagnosis has been there before. So if somebody is on digoxin and also anticoagulated, then it's probable that they've got atrial fibrillation. Look to see if they've missed any of their usual drugs, especially those controlling rate or rhythm. Some drugs prescribed acutely may also be exacerbating the problem. So for example, if someone's coming with an exacerbation of asthma or COPD and is on back-to-back nebulizers, these can cause tachycardia, which may well be the uh, presenting symptom that's come to you. So the ECG that we've included in the show notes is taken from lifeinthefastlane.com and they've got loads of great other ECG examples and lots more in-depth information about the pathophysiology of AF as well if you want to learn a little bit more there. So when we look at an ECG showing atrial fibrillation, the first thing that we will notice is that the pattern of the QRS complexes is irregularly irregular. That means you can't predict when the next one will come. You'll see looking at any ECG of atrial fibrillation that there are no convincing P waves before the QRS complexes and certainly none that are seen in a regular pattern. You might notice some coarse flutter waves in V1 and V2 which won't necessarily be present and don't necessarily mean this is flutter rather than fibrillation. There's also some T wave inversion in the inferior leads 2, 3 and AVF. This could be old or new, but suggests some ischemic process such as a previous MI, a new non-STEMI, or perhaps rate-related ischemia. You might also pick up AF when taking someone's pulse. So if you're feeling someone's pulse and it's irregular, and particularly irregularly irregular, and this has not been documented before, don't ignore it. It could be really quite significant. 
One way of approaching the examination of someone with atrial fibrillation is to start by assessing their fluid status, especially if their ventricular rate is high. If people are hypovolemic, then this may provoke their AF or might produce a physiologically required tachycardia, the same as someone would develop a tachycardia in sinus rhythm because they're dehydrated. Signs of that would include all the things you would expect in someone who's dry, so dry mouth, slow capillary refill, low skin turgor, reduced urine output and postural drops in blood pressure. Now, this is really important because if they've got a fast ventricular rate, regardless of whether it's AF or sinus rhythm because of dehydration, then you want to give fluids to try and bring that down in the same way that you would in any other rhythm. If someone's fluid overloaded, then that might indicate that they've been in AF for quite a long time, and that's led to some impaired functioning of the left ventricle. Signs of this would include peripheral edema, a raised JVP, shortness of breath, or wheeze due to pulmonary congestion. And in the chest, you might hear crepitations, or you might find signs of a pleural effusion. Now, this can be a chicken and egg situation. It may be that they've got some ischemic heart disease, and that's what's precipitated both of these conditions. But it gives you some clues as to the overall function of this person's heart. If someone is euvolemic or they're hypervolemic with fast atrial fibrillation, then you'll probably want to give them some medications to try and bring that heart rate down to improve their left ventricular function or to prevent it from getting worse. Next, have a think about abnormal things that shouldn't be there, such as pathogens and clots. Pulmonary embolism may cause acute onset AF by causing atrial distension due to pulmonary hypertension. Ask about chest pain and breathlessness and look for signs of DVT. PE is worth considering in anyone with low SATs and a clear chest. Infection can also trigger AF, even in those who aren't septic. Remember to look for the more hidden sources of infection, like pressure sores and swollen joints. And finally, is there anything poisoning them? Basically, too much or too little of something. Aside from checking their bloods, you may pick up on signs of thyrotoxicosis, such as tremor, exertional breathlessness, edema, hypertension and lid lag, or alcohol withdrawal, so sweating, tremors, hallucinations, anxiety, etc. You'll want to do a set of bloods on any patient with new onset AF. And the basics are going to include urea and electrolytes, thyroid function, calcium, and maybe a magnesium. If they've got new ischemic changes on their ECG or the history fits within acute coronary syndrome, then a troponin may well be an appropriate step as well. And finally, if you suspect a PE, you may want to go on and do a well score, which might point you towards doing a D-dimer. Whether or not you do a chest x-ray depends on your examination findings and how recently they've had one in relation to finding the atrial fibrillation. If the chest x-ray is normal but they've dropped their SAT significantly, then as we've discussed earlier, if you're thinking that there might be a PE, then you might want to go on and investigate that. In terms of other investigations, usually do an echo for a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, but that doesn't usually need to be done as an inpatient. And they usually aren't very helpful if the ventricular rate isn't controlled first because it's harder to see what the heart is doing. However, they can be quite useful to guide long-term management, so if there's coexisting heart failure or a valvular abnormality. However, it can be quite useful to guide the longer-term management, especially if there's coexisting heart failure or there's a valvular abnormality which is contributing, so they should probably have an outpatient echo. A 24-hour ECG or a 24-hour tape is not usually necessary in the context of atrial fibrillation in terms of diagnosis, because once you've seen it, you've seen it. 
It's really only if you're worried about the rate control with relation to symptoms are going too fast or too slow during periods causing symptomatic problems that might need a different approach to their rate control that a 24-hour tape would be useful. The management of AF can be roughly divided into rate control, anticoagulation and rhythm control. Rhythm control is a bit beyond the scope of this session and not something you'd be expected to make decisions about without senior or specialist input. With rate control, you'd initially be aiming to get the heart rate below 110 beats per minute. Beta blockers are a good place to start. Bisoprolol is well tolerated by most patients at low doses and can be increased in increments up to 10 mg per day if needed. Calcium channel blockers such as verapamil and diltiazem may be preferable for patients with COPD or asthma. And digoxin is preferred in patients with decompensated heart failure, but is generally less effective than beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. We anticoagulate patients with atrial fibrillation to reduce the risk of an embolic stroke. Strokes associated with AF have a greater morbidity, mortality and disability. And this is to do with the tendency for large atrial clots to break off and block the middle cerebral artery, causing a large stroke. Stroke risks should therefore be calculated, and we use the CHADS VAST score to do this. Most of the apps that calculate the score will then help you interpret it and to tell you whether or not anticoagulation is recommended. The HAS-BLED score can be used to work out somebody's bleeding risk and can highlight possible modifications to reduce that. But it hasn't been designed to be used in conjunction with the CHAZVAS score per se, but there are a number of articles that compare the two of them and show that you can use them together. But the important point really is it's going to give you a percentage risk for anticoagulating and for not anticoagulating and a percentage risk for bleeding. And you can then have a discussion with your patient and come up with a shared decision making plan. So antiplatelet drugs have no role in the management of atrial fibrillation. And they should usually be stopped when starting anticoagulants unless there's a really specific indication from cardiology or the stroke team for example that they need to be on both for a specific reason. The first line anticoagulant these days is usually a DOAC so something like a Pixaban or Rivaroxaban and the drug of choice usually varies between trusts so check your local guidelines before starting. Before starting on a DOAC, you'll want to check their renal function and, as we've talked about before, using a creatinine clearance for older adults rather than EGFR, which is usually more accurate. You will find people who are still on warfarin for atrial fibrillation and for some people this might be the right choice. Look back at their INR over the last few months and see whether it's been well controlled. If it hasn't, then it might be worth thinking about switching to a DOAC. It's worth looking back at their past medical history as well to see whether they're on warfarin for a very specific indication. So, for example, a metallic valve, in which case they should stay on warfarin, but to decide whether actually now might be the right time to switch them to a DOAC. And finally, lots of people have concerns about starting anticoagulation in people who fall over quite a lot. Now, the evidence out there isn't all that robust, but there is quite a lot of evidence that someone needs to be falling over a lot so sort of two, three hundred times a year before the risk of anticoagulation and bleeding outweighs the benefits that we see in stroke risk reduction. In the show notes, we've included links to the various resources we've mentioned, such as the CHADS VASC and HASBLED scores, as well as the ECG we talked through. We've also done a full length podcast episode on atrial fibrillation, which you can find on our website, www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk, and that's series six, episode six. 
The MDT and the associated learning resources are free to use and cover a range of topics concerning older people, from diabetes to depression. You can check out the rest of this mini-series for more bite-sized learning, and we hope that this episode of Help has been a help. Thank you.